Hello there, old patron. Welcome, new patron. Uh, this is a three article uh, in which the three of us bring articles to discuss. It's a bit of a show and tell. Uh, the way it works, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, if this is your first month with us, uh, welcome once again. We each bring an article to discuss and hopefully they cohere around a central theme. This month, uh, the discussion is about, uh, let's say, broadly speaking, the durability of right populism. And we've got cases looking at uh, Brazil-US relations, uh, at the US itself, and at Britain. Uh, So without further ado, I will hand over to George, who's going to talk about his article. He's up first. Thanks. Yeah, so I picked um, from this weekend's FT, um, Red Wall voters remain faithful to conservatives which is not really a sort of breaking story, um, but it's uh, I guess it addresses some of the big questions about the disruptive medium-term political impact of, of COVID. Um, and so basically what they've done is they've taken this place in the, in the West Midlands called Dudley, or I'll try and do the accent, Dudley. That's, that's the... Which actually, Thanks for that. And, uh, <laughs> It, Thanks uh, for that, George. That was, was really good. Well done. You've just alienated. A... You've alienated all of our Red Wall listeners. Like those are those all. are the people that we reach out to and that we love, George. And you've just alienated all of our Red Wall supporters. There was a study which showed that the West Midlands uh, accent was the um, one that non-English speakers found the nicest of all the regional um, British accents, including Irish and. Uh, as mm. well, which is often okay, good save. the nicest one. Yeah, good good save. I, I so t- tell us what the red wall is. Yeah, so, okay. So actually to get into the meat of it a little bit, it, it's an extension of this um, narrative, this idea of the, the red wall, which is the um, ex-Labour heartlands. I mean, the heartlands is another way to, to, to describe this um, series of, or this set of kind of Midlands, northern constituencies um, who... Already in 2017 in, in Dudley, um, there was a, only a 20, uh, yeah, it was only 22 votes um, in it. So it was really, really close. And then the, the Conservatives won this um, constituency for the first time in 2019. So it's one of these kind of, I guess you would say a bellwether or kind of, it's, it's the place that journalists who, when they leave London, um, like to go to to get some local colour. And there's a picture of a market and some some people accompanying the article. But anyway, what's what's um, what's it about? It's basically that the opinion poll, there was an opinion poll by Comrades last week, um, which suggested that essentially the Tories support is back where it was pre-COVID. So I think there was a lot of questions. And even we had some discussions about this. What will be the impact politically of of coronavirus? Is this going to be the end of neoliberalism? Is it going to be this you know this this kind of place for the for the left to charge into this this space? Um, and it looks already quite quickly that things are returning to um, in at least some aspects to the way they were um, prior to essentially March of of this year. So yeah, I think that's that's the the, the main takeaway from this is essentially things are back already. Um, to some degree of normal in some places where um, where there was, you know, I think the, the left or Labour in the UK might have thought, OK, let's have a look at these places and see if there's anything we can do to try and um, to try and make some hay with the narrative that the Tories have mismanaged coronavirus. So yeah, I just found it very, very interesting. And um, I think this is something which I'd not like, oh, here's vindication of what I'd said previously, but this is something that I'd said um, before on the podcast, which is that I don't think there's going to be it's not straightforward that there's going to be lasting 
um, political change as a result of coronavirus. It doesn't work that simply and straightforwardly. Yeah, I mean, I agree. So the article is by Sebastian Payne, who's, you know, kind of uh, reasonably decent, I think, um, reasonably decent reporter on uh, matters such as these. Um, And it has some other points, which I think are worth drawing out as well. Um, The fact that Corbyn seemed to be so so important to um, the kind of uh, the people who were interviewed, at least, as well as what was said in the polls, the... The fact that he uh, was seen to be anathema to these voters, it's kind of pro-military, pro-old-fashioned um, kind of labour, patriotic, and this is what put them off. But also specifically, and one person who was interviewed for it also mentioned specifically the fact that Corbyn flip-flopped on Brexit. That was uh, such an important um, marker for them. Um, and on top of that, the other interesting point, which I think is which is drawn out in the article, is the significance of um uh, Boris Johnson's new chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who's uh, Asian, um, as you can tell from the name, but his association with managing the corona with the coronavirus crisis, the you know I mean they're kind of the attempts that they've put in to support the the flagging economy, um, the furlough scheme, kind of wage support, uh, financial support to businesses. All of this um, is drawn out as making him a popular figure, but also someone that makes it a kind of an electoral combination, which is that kind of Boris Johnson can appeal to um, with his kind of bombastic and uh, kind of supposedly down to earth style. He can appeal to red wall voters for being kind of uh, shooting from the hip and straight talking, whereas the more um, uh, kind of, uh, I suppose, the more uh, dulcet tones of Sunak, um, he'll appeal to. Uh, voters in Surrey. So the more liberal wing of Tory voters who might be repulsed by the more populist aspects of the Johnson government and his anti-EU stance, they will be brought back into the fold and consolidated through Sunak. And so that the Tories have uh, have two figures who can who embody the new kind of cross-class coalition, working class voters in um, the former Red Wall and home counties voters um, who will be brought, who will be uh, consolidated by Sunak. So I thought that was also a good point from the piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'm not sure about the prognostic aspects or the suggested kind of prognostics of the piece, which is to say, um, I think a lot could change. And I, I probably disagree a bit with George here, just in terms of the political impacts of coronavirus. I don't mean that it's going to be necessarily propitious for the left or anything like that, but I think the impact of it is going to be so significant. Um, we haven't really, uh, I think we're underestimating uh, the severity of what's still to come and still to become totally manifest, I think, because, you know, you have these horrific kind of GDP figures, but then you think, well, it'll bounce back. So, you know, it'll be, um, it'll be kind of quickly resume kind of growth, but um, I'm, I'm skeptical about that and I think that will have certain political impacts. What I think we can draw on probably a bit more solidly from this article is looking backwards and the story that one could tell about what happened to Labour both in a long-term sense and also specific to what happened uh, under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the party. And as uh, George said in the introduction, a place like Dudley is a bit kind of bellwether, you know, for maybe for American listeners. You could think of a kind of mid-sized town in Rust Belt, uh, Pennsylvania or Ohio or something like that, um, which would kind of capture more or less kind of the type of place we're talking about, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, But so the the thing that I wanted to draw out is that there's a long-term, in places like Dudley, there's a long-term decline in the labor vote, both as in absolute terms, um, which is of a piece with the kind of wider withdrawal from 
public electoral politics, uh, lower turnout rates and so on, kind of looking over the long term, um, but also in relative terms that Labour has been losing relatively uh, to Conservatives and other parties uh, over the past you know, 20 years. Um, so that was already clear, but Labour did win the seat very, very narrowly in 2017. That was still under Jeremy Corbyn. So the idea that suddenly uh, Jeremy Corbyn's kind of, I guess, identification or the way that Jeremy Corbyn is identified with you know, to put in the really cliche terms like liberal, metropolitan, elite, blah, 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 kind of vegetarian, organic, ah, all that kind of stuff. You know, you can, you can uh, color in the lines, uh, the rest of the depiction yourself. organic stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you, you that's, get the picture, right? That's literally right? what it said on all the campaign posts. <laughs> you know. um, but, you know, those voters were still willing to vote for him, or at least a majority uh, or a plurality in that constituency were still willing to vote for uh, Corbyn. What happened in the interim um, you know, Brexit, and this is something that we highlighted in our post-election episode uh, at the end of 2019, um, but also this idea of Corbyn himself being seen as untrustworthy, unpatriotic, um, which I think is partly a product of kind of the media bombardment that he received over the past kind of two years, you know, since, uh, well, you know, after the 2017 election and especially in the recent period. But I think that what really shows up is how... And deadly that Brexit decision was, um, as Phil highlighted. Yeah, one of the interviewees mentioned it. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean that that's exactly what um, made all these kind of um, claims about Corbyn's lack of leadership. Um, I guess hit with with voters because that was obviously a, a narrative that the media have been pushing for a long time. But if you basically the major political issue, you don't. It's not clear what your position is, and then to the extent that it's is clear, you you, you change it. Um, and you you go against the go against the vote, then I mean that is that is always going to be terminal. Um, and yeah, I mean that's that's a very clear difference between 2017 and 2019. I think the it is an interesting sort of part of the country as well. I mean, one thing which I didn't realise was which is highlighted in the piece is that up until 1976, this you know black country manufacturing trade. So this is like the West Country made it the richest place in Britain per capita, higher than London, higher than the southeast. Well, um, output, so this, output. So that was actual kind of industrial production. Um, yeah. So, it's, head, but so yeah. It's, it's a it's an area which had a lot of which had a lot of wealth and or, yeah. or a lot of a lot of centrality to the to the British economy. And now it's kind of um, a looked down upon, sort of despised place by I would say the um, yeah. London politicos. And it's so an that's astonish- why yeah. yeah well, I'm just going to say it's an astonishing kind of it's so the. The fact that the factoid George just mentioned about um, how wealthy it was in the late 70s is something mentioned by the former Labour MP for the constituency who's interviewed in the piece. And it's an astonishing statistic. I mean, it tells you just how, um, uh, I mean, George is being fairly generous, I think, in describing how the, that town would be viewed. The fact in the how, um, how much the kind of um, economy, uh, the regional economy, the national economy in England has polarised in the last 40 years. That really tells you something that from 1976, richer per capita out, in per capita output terms than London. Um, and it's in the wake of the kind of growing financialization of the British economy, Thatcherism, all of the rest of it, Blairism, globalization, blah, 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 that it's now kind of um, that kind of small town Rust Belt, which is kind of despised by the latte drinking classes. Um that you know, it's Mate. really striking. <laughs> yeah, except for latte drinking classes, as this points out, that uh, you know, 
as one of the labor, I think, mayors in the area, um, or XMP rather, uh, points out that, you know, maybe people didn't want their kids working down the mines anymore, uh, but they're also not terribly happy about it. The only jobs being on offer is at the cost of coffee. So people are drinking latte outside of, you know, maybe central London. Not. I just want to illustrate that. Why are you standing up for the latte drinking classes? Maybe I'm, they're drinking. No, I'm standing up for latte. I'm just saying latte is far more popular now. No, I mean, uh, yeah, let's. Any, anyway, I, I, I hate these. I hate these little characterizations. Actually, like red wall as well. How it just becomes this kind of little over-repeated sort of talking point, and as if it sums up so much information in one thing, and it means that that knowledge is never really. Uh, interrogate. It's true. I mean, look, know, I mean, it's, but it's the same, you know, with like Rust Belt is also, yeah. you know, it's deep, on the one hand, it's kind of deeply patronizing to Midwestern, um, you know, citizens, voters, whatever. At the same time, you know, it does capture something about deindustrialization and it becomes a kind of cliched shorthand. And the Red Wall, you know, if you look at kind of an electoral map of Britain before 2019, there's a really thick band of, um, of Labour seats, one part, you know, there were one party statelets. Uh, between Scotland and um, Southern England. And so, you know, I mean, it, it's a cliched, but on the other hand, it does capture something which uh, is evocative and effective. It's yeah. annoying, but useful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think just yeah, like, like, <laughs> like, like so many, many of us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think what, what, yeah, just to just to return to this, this point about, I guess, the what's the nature of the coalition that the, the Tories are trying to to develop and, and protect. So it's it's Surrey and Dudley. So Surrey, for perhaps listeners who aren't that familiar with the south of, of England, um, very, you know, very affluent, sort of semi-rural, um, but you can get to London pretty quickly. It's, so it's Connecticut for, for American listeners. Yeah, you, can like... drive, you can drive 10 minutes and go to, you know, go and get your, get on your boat on the Thames, or you can drive, you know, 15 minutes and get on the, you know, get on the train and get into London for your job. Um, but it's not London. So this is a coalition which ex which is kind of ex excludes the metropolis, um, which could have a lot of interesting distortions in in British politics because I think that's the way, that's the kind of traditional Tory heartland, and so it's they're they're reconfiguring how to, um, how to kind of do this geographically, and I think there's you're going to see a lot of perhaps more or less populist moves uh, of an anti-London, anti-latte drinking classes bent um, <laughs> in British politics. So yeah, be careful. If you're a fan of lattes, you're going to get a shellacking from the Tories. All right, shall we uh, move on to the next one? Which is yours. Tell is us. it mine? Okay. Um, right, so mine That's is... That's a good yeah, rhetorical question. Asking, should we move on to the next one? Yes, well, we should, because it's mine. I was wait no, no, I was waiting for, um, for affirmation. Uh, right, so the, my article is uh, in the New York Times. Lawmakers... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, just just before we do move on, I just wanted. So, if you you guys won't have seen this because you read it online, I read the actual paper um, paper version. And sorry, just to point out, um, it's on page two this story, and then directly right underneath it, in much smaller, is statistical agency recognises full nationalisation of railways. The de facto nationalisation of Britain's railways has been has been formally recognised after the statistical agency and train operators uh, said train operators' debts would be counted on the government's balance sheet. So it's kind of you know, just this is the mood music. This is the sort of thing yeah. that you're going to be reading. I just thought it was, it was no, it's it's good. It's actually, an interesting nice. little little chaser after the main 
the main story. But yeah, that's an interesting context. Sorry to interrupt there, Alex. Yeah, no, no. Been, I mean, well, yeah, the nationalization is, is, is not proper nationalization, I suppose. It's a you know statistical quirk because uh, all their kind of losses have been socialized. Anyway, uh, that's uh, maybe for another time. Uh, so this article is in, my article is in the New York Times. Uh, it is by Ernesto Londoño, Manuela Andreoni, and Leticia Casado. Uh, actually, she's probably Brazilian, so I pronounced that wrong. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so anyway, it's, uh, lawmakers alarmed by reports U.S. envoy told Brazil it could help re-elect Trump. Um, the story is about the fact that Trump seems to be via his ambassador in Brazil and um, putting pressure on, on Brazil to accept larger imports um, at zero tariffs of ethanol, um, which Brazil produces a lot of. Um, it produces um, probably about 80% or something of its needs, um, but it imports more uh, an additional tranche from the US. Um, and the US and Brazil are the two biggest ethanol producers by far in, in the world. They account for like 80% or something of uh, global production. Um, this is this story, so I, I mean, on the one hand, it, on face value, it just seems a bit of dodginess on Trump's part, basically trying to put pressure on his uh, Brazilian partners uh, to change their um, you know, tariff barriers for immediate electoral advantage. Basically, it's to help ethanol producers in places like Iowa um, so that uh, they can remain part of his, or so they'll choose to remain part of his electoral base. Um, so that's Dodge, and it's been called out by this uh, by the uh, House Foreign Relations Committee. Um, at the same time, there's an element of kind of <laughs> Russia gating Brazil on this, which is I, I tweeted this the other day. I think it's completely absurd, but whatever. We live in ridiculous times, and it's not completely unimaginable that this should also become a thing. Um, so. So this is a kind of story that's been tacked on to this main story, but it's that uh, Eduardo Bolsonaro, who uh, his father, the president, had nominated to be even becoming uh, ambassador to the U.S., which was then uh, denied. But anyway, um, he's one of Bolsonaro's sons, and he tweeted out a video like Trump pro Trump 2020, uh, calling for uh, his Trump's re-election and so on. Obviously, they're very close, and the whole Bolsonaro project is very closely tied to uh, to Trump and, and and Trump remaining in the White House. I think um, just because this government is so, it runs on pure ideology. Let's put it that way. Um, if ever if ever there was an attempt to run a government on pure ideology, it was this one because a lot of its kind of. Uh, electoral coalition is fragmenting. Um, the Bolsonaro government's remarkably weak, but there's also a kind of inertia. So there's nothing really able to dislodge it right at the moment. Um, and as a consequence, it's uh, quite dependent on the kind of ideological reinforcement of having a kind of similar figure in the White House. Um, so there's kind of a lot going on here. Um, I, I Just to, I guess, highlight the three themes that I think are more important. I guess you could say, on one hand, it's kind of a corruption of the republic, if you uh, believe in such a thing, um, both in the U.S. and in Brazil. Um, it's the things that Democrats like to accuse Trump of, and in that, and in this regard, they're maybe sometimes correct in terms of not following uh, the kind of forms of decorum, as well as the kind of uh, supposed impartiality that the the president should uh, should have in terms of not privileging um, his own. Uh, electoral, uh, his own electoral future or his own private interests uh, in favor of, of the kind of the greater good. Um, but likewise, you can see the same thing in the U.S. with the Bolsonaros who are so tied uh, to the U.S., these supposed nationalists, 
who um, basically just want to not make Brazil great again, uh, but make Bra make Brazil part of the US <laughs> as much as possible. And so that relationship of dependency is something that comes out very clearly in this article, um, as well as the questions of Russiagate uh, in, in, in the idea that um, foreign influence is, especially from a kind of relatively unimportant state like Brazil uh, is able to influence uh, the US's internal affairs, um, which I think uh, Phil will talk about in his article. But anyway, any comments on that? Yeah, I'd yeah, say, I had, I mean, I'd one just on on ethanol um, because I was so when we were in in Brazil, um, I was quite struck by how um, prevalent it is, not just in drinks, but obviously um, it's three quarters <laughs> of. Cars what does in... that mean? Are you, are you slagging oh. off our, our, the cachaça that we had, mate? That was actually no, not, not bad stuff. Uh, that was it's, it's great stuff. Um, no, but three quarters of cars in Brazil use a mixture of ethanol and gasoline, so it's quite it's a it's quite an important um, um, you know product for for, for Brazilian <laughs> life, um, which I don't think it you know I, I don't I don't well actually I should ask you, Alex. You're the you know a man on the ground there. Um, does it have a bit more of a, a kind of a resonance as a as an important good for for import and export? Yeah, I mean it. You know, it was a, Brazil has made very important advances in agronomy um, and in these sort and of related areas uh, over the past you know 30, forty years or so. Um, it's probably one of the few things that Brazil can point to as a real kind of technological and and productive success. Um, and ethanol is one of them uh, in in not being reliant on on petroleum as much. Um, for decades now, all all um, you know, car gasoline has to be mixed uh, at least twenty percent uh, ethanol. Um, and in your car, you know, most cars are like flexi cars, so you go and fill up your car at the at the you know at the tank, and you can choose ethanol or petrol or diesel. Um, and most cars can take both. So um, you know, that's kind of it, it's obviously an important um, an important product. Um, but the fact that Brazil still has to import some when it should be able to be fully self-sufficient in it, I think is damning. And the fact that the Bolsonaro government, you know, doesn't really have kind of any industrial policy in that regard. Uh, and rather what it wants to do with this ethanol thing, which is um, an element which I didn't raise from, I think it comes out in the article, which is that in uh, trying to lower tariff barriers and basically allow uh, basically producers in Ohio to export more ethanol to Brazil, it would be so that the U.S. Uh, repays in kind and allows more uh, soy and beef in from from Brazilian exports. Um, but you know, I think that whole story has to be put in the context of severe deindustrialization that Brazil has undergone over um, over the past decades, um, such that it's very dependent on agricultural exports, which then themselves are subject to fluctuations in price, which makes it very vulnerable to, to economic crises, which is what happened uh, in mid part of the last decade with the end of the commodity super cycle. Um, so I think in that regard, it's really damning because Brazil is kind of classic kind of middle income trap um, problem there um, of not being able to compete on wages with somewhere like China or, you know, even more so uh, Vietnam now or somewhere like that, um, while at the same time not really having the, the capacities for, for kind of real industrial development and is becoming um, subject to deindustrialization, which, which is kind of, you know, a, a rich world problem, um, but which also affects a kind of middle income country like Brazil. So I suppose the uh, the things I wanted to add to it, I, I thought it was 
uh, actually a remarkably good article, only in the sense that it's actually proper reporting. Um, and I guess that tells in the fact that it's all, I mean, as far as I can tell, the reporters are all on the bylines are all Brazilian. And I suppose so um, it's good in the sense that it's, um, you know, a kind of a fairly uh, detailed and uh, granular account of the interlocking uh, both interlocking constituency, political constituencies and uh, national economic interests around agro exports and imports that tie together various sections of the Brazilian and um, US political elite tied into um, two presidents, two kind of right populist presidents, both of whom are flagging in, in the polls or struggling um, with their future electoral chances. And I thought it was just a really good kind of piece to um, to which tied together, you know, detailed lots of um quotes and um links to particular uh, you know particular individuals and how they're kind of caught up in the story so i thought you know strikingly um strikingly you know yeah just a really good read actually and um old fashioned good old fashioned journalism um i don't it think i mean have, it it doesn't have i'm not sure i'd entirely agree because it doesn't have any actual like evidence it's here are some stories which the Brazilian media reported, and this is, you know, this is means that Trump's bad. That's essentially my take, my simplistic reading of it. Um, because no, there I disagree. Any, I think that's any the, evidence that they, yeah, they've talked to people about what uh, Todd Chapman said. They've talked to. Uh, okay, I grant you that, but I mean, they've give, you know they give you some information and background about the detail of the um, of the two kind like agro import export. They've got um, statements from people, right, from uh, people. It's true they don't have, like, a smoking gun. And obviously it's in the New York Times, so it's going to be framed in a particular kind of way. Um, but, okay, maybe I I don't want to make, you know, as maybe my claim is a bit overblown, but, you know, I still stand by it that it's kind of – there's elements here of good old-fashioned reporting, which I guess I'm not used to seeing. It, it stuck out because it seems to me so rare increasingly when you read – when you open kind of the major papers of record in the West now. I'm not sure I'd go so far. expectations are just too low. Maybe so. I was going to say, I'd not so, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say it's they're going to Russiagate Brazil um, because I don't think that kind of Brazilian, you know, I don't think you can kind of crank up uh, Brazilgate the <laughs> no, same way no. that you can with Russia, given, you know, you can always kind of fall back on um, Cold War kind of tropes to to for that story to kind of, to carry that story here it's more kind of nefarious links um between uh, kind of uh, you know someone who's to the right of trump which is the brazilian president and kind of you get to tar you get to tar trump with the same brush by their um by their ideological affiliation and their um the way in which they've politically bonded and particularly the way in which like you say alex bolsonaro has kind of pathetically latched on to latched on to trump given his um given the kind of peculiar characteristics of the Brazilian elite and their weird kind of, um, I don't know how you'd call it, but well, their weird the, quasi-nationalism. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a term uh, here in Brazil, which is really important, which was coined in the 50s, but it's called viralachismo or mongrel syndrome. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, way back when. Um, but it's a, the kind of idea that uh, in Brazil, especially elites, um, but it, you know, it, it filters down into the middle class uh, this idea that uh, Brazilians are Brazil is just doomed, basically that it's no good, and this kind of looking up, thinking that looking every looking at everything in Brazil through uh, shit shit tainted glasses, um, to coin a to 
going to term. I don't know. I don't know what you'd say the opposite of rose tinted glasses are, but you know, basically seeing everything in Brazil, like, oh, this is we're we're the most corrupt. Nothing ever works. Uh, we can't get anything done. Like everyone, Brazilians are lazy, and it's basically a way of loathing uh, not just your your, compa your compatriots, but really kind of looking down on on the Brazilian masses as kind of um, holding Brazil back and a desire to be, uh, you know, desire to be the U.S. and to view yourself as being you know, North American, basically, to be as wealthy and just to feel like, well, why aren't we able to do what the, the U.S. is able to do? You know, we should st we should strike free trade deals a, or something like that. It's a country, it's a country with low self-esteem. Yeah. It strikes me it's a, common, it's a common syndrome among the middle classes of middle-income countries because it's common Absolutely. among the southern tier of, um, of the EU as well, looking up to kind of uh, France and Germany and Holland and so on. Um, so, but I think, you know, I mean, obviously, you know more than I do about it, Alex, but it seems to me with Brazil, it goes further because it seems like it's hard to embarrass them on being, you know, it's hard to embarrass Sense. the Brazilian right <laughs> on being insufficiently nationalistic. Like that just doesn't seem to land somehow in a way that I think it would in places, you know, like, um, I don't know, Greece or Spain or Italy, um, whereas the Brazilian elite seem to be completely inured to charges of... Um, but, well, they don't yeah. seem to, you know, somehow it doesn't seem to stick as much because well, they're so, they don't even have kind of a sufficient sense of their own national independence to be prickly about being seen to be overly dependent on foreign allies in a way that I think other elites do. Well, because they don't have a notion, because it, for all their nationalism, it's uh, it's an inward, it's for an, a, domestic consumption, the nationalism, basically. It's to say, we, the elite, are Brazil and you, uh, the masses, are trash. Um, so it's not an external facing kind of nationalism so much. I mean, of course, there there are kind of elites who will be embarrassed about Brazil looking bad on the global stage. In fact, that's one of the reasons that a lot hated Lula, because they thought they were embarrassed by the fact that he didn't speak English and, you know, whatever, his, he made grammatical errors in Portuguese and all this kind of stuff, you know, the kind of usual snobbery. Um, but I, I think it also tells a story about kind of nationalism uh, right-wing nationalism under neoliberalism, especially in a kind of dependent country like Brazil, where you don't have the kind of nationalism of the of the 70s, where although it was very closely, you know, the military um, dictatorship was very closely tied to the US, there was still a sense of, hang on, we're, we're responsible for our own affairs, we're going to undertake uh, kind of development um, policies, including import substitution and so on. Uh, whereas today, it's it completely kind of the, the elites are completely global, globally oriented. So the so the nationalism discourse is really just uh, a way of distinguishing themselves from from the masses at home, but without really pursuing any kind of nationalist policy in, in practical terms. Whether it's national development or um, you know maybe building up the military against a foreign enemy or anything like that, there isn't any of that. It's a symbolic yeah. nationalism. I guess I I mean I just had a couple of quick points on this on the article, which I think are more on what it says about America, probably than what it says about Brazil. Um, and the first is just, this is, you know, the distorting global impact of the American election season and how many things are going to be linked to more or less directly to, you know, um, what could happen in that, in that election. And what's what I guess what Trump's strategy is going to be, we still don't have a very clear idea of what his pitch is going to be. Is he going to be a deals guy? Is this going to be kind of, you know, his his way of, of selling himself to the American people. It seems like he's left that too late, though, um, on the whole. And just a, a second point, to return to your idea of a Brazil gate, um, Alex, if they're getting in, um, the New York Times getting in their excuses early for, for Biden losing, 
Um, it could be, you know, Russiagate, Cold War tropes. You know, you can say all sorts of things about Russian Russian villains. But if there is a Brazil Gate, it will be based on corruption and things like this like back, you can you can sort of see it maybe starting to develop like backroom deals you have yeah. the corrupt trump administration and and various appointees and then corrupt kind of foreign governments colluding um so it's not a case of too much force and sneakiness of the the russians and their computer tech savviness but um a question of the corruptness of of brazil or whoever else is going to be the external um, agent who will influence the election. So yeah, I think there's, yeah. you know, something, to, something to say if this does end up happening that we we said it first. Although yeah. it's not seem quite well, no, that's right. Point. I mean, I, 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 the, I, I tweeted the other day, like, oh, that they're going to Russiagate Brazil, kind of jokingly. But you know, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, the the chairman, uh, Representative Elliot Engel, said we've seen this playbook before. It's disgraceful and unacceptable. Um, the Bolsonaro family needs to stay out of the U.S. election. Right. So the same language as as with regard to to Putin and and Russia. Um, so uh, everyone's getting their excuses in early, let's put it that way, which actually is a nice segue onto our last piece, which uh, Phil is going to introduce. Yeah, so this is a piece from uh, the New Statesman, kind of a left-leaning political weekly in the UK, and it is called Imagine the Damage a President Would Cause. What would happen if Trump refused defeat? Question mark. And it is uh, one of their uh, journalists called Emily Tamkin talking to U.S. legal scholar Lawrence Douglas, who has just written a um, just written a book, in fact, about what would happen if Trump um, what would happen if Trump refuses to leave the White House refuses to leave the White House in November. Um, so. I mean, this is so. This is one of uh, you know. This is hardly. Uh, this isn't the only piece on this theme which has been published, and this has been kind of a talking point now for a while among the liberal left about the prospect of um, of uh, Trump refusing to leave. That would cause some kind of constitutional crisis in November, and also he's given sucker to this, or he's been seen to give sucker to this by his tweet, suggesting that in the context that there'll be much more scope for um, electoral fraud in the context of significant mail voting in the November election due to the corona crisis. And this, so he suggested that the election should be delayed and everyone obviously, um, like lemmings, uh, kind of piled off the cliff that he'd set up for them. So uh, this is one, I mean, I suppose it's only to say that there's nothing particularly striking about this um, piece because it's one of many, apart from the fact that it's an exemplar of the genre because it's an interview with um, a leading uh, legal constitutional scholar and the fact that he's written this book called Will He Go? Um, so, I mean, uh, the detail, I mean, r listeners, I suppose, can work through the detail themselves as to the various uh, possible scenarios um, of uh, what might happen in between the Electoral College or, uh, you know, I, I, can, I mean, if there's a very tight vote or if it's contested in particular counties or particular states. And, you know, I mean, this isn't the only scenario which has been played out. I suppose what's striking about it is, um, and what put me onto this is, uh, I saw a satirical, uh, a tweet by one of these satirical um, sites where it says people, uh, words to the effect, uh, the title was, the tweet was, people are afraid, people who refuse to accept the outcome of 2016 are worried that Trump won't accept the outcome of 2020. And I think <laughs> it cut to the quick. Yeah. Um, in terms of speaking to all these kinds of this agonizing over whether Trump will, um, whether Trump will go or not, speaks in fact of the bad faith 
of um, the Democratic Party and its supporters who have done their utmost already to delegitimize the outcome of the earlier presidential election. Um, and that's involved kind of not only with the kind of hysterical Russiagate nonsense that we've just talked about, but all, and, you know, previously on the pod as well. Um, and that it's involved so many kind of, um, you know, that they've even kind of uh, swept up sinister elements of the U.S. intelligence and security state in order to um, delegitimize the outcome of um, the 2016 um, election, but also to generally kind of undermine the electoral credibility of U.S. politics and its outcomes. And so I think this is um, the kind of the seamy underbelly of all of these debates is the fact that the first people to um, make a significant push in the last few years to delegitimize electoral outcomes in the US is the Democratic Party. Um, now, it's not to say that obviously I think what's happening here with Trump is he's doing, he played a similar game um, in the run up to 2016 when all the polls were against him. He uh, made all sorts of claims about how Hillary, the Democrats, would steal the election. And the way I read that was not only was it him kind of seizing control of the news cycle as he effectively, as he's so good at doing through Twitter, um, but also he was playing it both ways, right? So if he if he did, had lost, which, you know, there were good chances that he could have lost in 2016, given the fact that it came down to a few thousand votes in um, significant constituencies for the Electoral College, um, that he was clearly kind of setting up a narrative that would have allowed him to remain a kind of public figure in the aftermath of an electoral defeat. Um, and I think probably the same thing is going on here. And so he's willing, you know, I don't think he has any compunctions about um, damaging the kind of uh, using his kind of insurrectionary persona to damage the credibility of the U.S. political system. Um, but more to the point, he's not the only one who's done it, whereas obviously the, um, you know, the kind of the way in which this is framed, both in this article, but else elsewhere, is that this speaks to his uniquely, the unique menace that he poses to the fabric of American democracy, when in fact, I think it's, um, you know, those of those opponents are, are those have deep and serried ranks on both sides of the aisle. Um, and that it includes kind of sinister, you know, genuinely sinister aspects of the U.S. deep state on the Democratic side as well. And so that has to think I, has, I think that has to be borne in uh, when thinking about these kinds of debates. Yeah, no, it was a good it was a good piece for, for discussion. I think there's a few points I'd make. One is that it's it's quite amusing. You sort of see this um, the nightmare of Trump staying indefinitely in the you know knobs or trump um derangement syndrome it won't, won't finish with him leaving office you know there's there's going to be um various recurrences and various kind of extensions of this of this kind of uh, paranoia and worry that the i guess the liberal establishment have um but yeah just one one sort of paragraph that i wanted to flag up was um when what would the military do if Trump refused to accept defeat? You know, and then says that the Douglas, so the, who wrote the book, spoke to a prominent general, and it's like the you can clearly see the 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 wish that there's kind of a good military coup, so replacing kind of the bad fascists with the good the good fascism and the good kind of um, the military stepping in on the on the right side, and it's just the whole thing comes across as 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 pretty. Yeah, like a, a projection and a, a pretty revealing kind of um, 
worry to actually have written a whole a whole book on this on this scenario it's it is a bit strange is this it's almost like is this what you is this what you want to happen um because then it will be proved you'll you'll have been proved right um, about all of these things which which trump might have might have said it's a, it's a kind of a strange i think a strange position to be coming from on the part of the democrats and their sort of various um, intellectual allies but not a not a not a surprising one i suppose there is um Another element, uh, you know, one other thing which I thought was telling is um, the kind of John when they talk about John King, so who is um, a news anchor. I mean, I guess he'll be familiar to our U.S. listeners, a news anchor who operates uh, CNN's so-called Magic Wall on election nights, who uh, you know kind of uh, reveals the results and when they make their inferences about who's won. And they say in this article about how everyone has become a John King. So and that's dangerous to American democracy. So again, this kind of telling, I suppose, the telling reveal, the idea that um, the credibility of the experts who tell us, um, who kind of interpret, uh, who tell, kind of read the runes for us of electoral statistics, and that the fact that this they they no longer have that credibility, is the fact that it's been massified. I suppose is uh, seen as damaging to American democracy. Um, again, I think a telling reveal. I suppose to put it in a broader context um, is only to say, you know, that given that both the Republicans and the Democrats now are happy to damage the credibility, the kind of democratic credibility and legitimacy of their own system in order to score partisan points, I think that speaks perhaps to a deeper crack up within the American state itself. Um, it's kind of, a, you know, a unipolar system, which is so kind of uh, the American empire, so sprawling and immense and conceited and decadent. Um, and maybe, you know, I don't wish to overdo it. But in that context where there is such little external pressure or has been a, at least for a, such a long time uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War, that now the uh, two wings of the American elite feel that they can kind of tear chunks out of each other to this extent without being aware of how much they're imper imperiling their own kind of um, electoral and political basis uh, that they can attack each other in this way. You know, the Democrats can try seek to kind of overthrow an elected president effectively come, you know, come to the cusp of trying to mount a soft coup against elected president that Trump can kind of stoke up conspiracy theories about the Democrats um, stealing the next election um, and that both of them do this with seemingly yeah. kind of oblivious to uh, the standing, to their own standing and to the position of the US in the world. Uh, that does tell you something about the degeneracy of the US ruling class as a whole, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I mean, obviously, you're not in a situation, uh, as this article seems to suggest is possible, that you might have a real rupture within the state that, for example, the military might then have to come in and remove Trump from office, but maybe Trump has the support of... I don't know, some other um, bodies of armed men. I mean, that obviously isn't the case. And I think that's, uh, you know, completely fantastical. Um, just to make the contrast, in Brazil, that very much is possible. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that it's very likely, but it's definitely possible. Whereas... Uh, yeah, and it's, do, happened, do, it's happened recently is the point yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. You have constitutional ruptures, whereas in the US, you know, you, you haven't had that really. So, uh, you know, since the Civil War. So... Um, what I what I think though, and where I slightly disagree with George, is that I mean, although there might be a, a kind of you know dis wishful dystopia element to um, this this book by Professor Douglas, uh, I think he is far more reserved than his interviewer um, you know wants to lead him on to be. 
So, you know, he, he makes the point that, look, yeah, I don't really right. think Trump is going to not leave. Like, that's not a realistic possibility. What is possible, though, is the damage that he tries to do on his way out, that basically throws his uh, toys out of the pram and tries to do as much damage as possible, both uh, in advance of the election and sowing the seeds about of the legitimacy of the result. And after leaving, you know, or in the process of, of leaving office, that he still keeps shrieking about unfairness, um, that he has his hardcore Trumpian base, which uh, will cause difficulties. Um, and that, as as you say, you know, Phil, it's a, you know, it's a conspiracy from actually both sides to kind of undermine um, American American democracy, even, even in its kind of liberal institutional uh, form. Um, and the irony of that, I guess, is that, you know, not so much the the GOP itself, but you know, at least under Trump, uh, it's been really only the Democrats who've been left holding that candle. They're the party of institutionality, of uh, of, of running things the right way, of defense of the republic, and so on. Um, but you know, Phil's completely correct in pointing out that they've been complicit in, un- in undermining it just as much as uh, the Trumpians have. Yeah, and I think this is. I think you're being a bit too too sympathetic or too generous to the to the um, the author of a book will he go i just think it's it's just it's very frustrating the hypocrisy is just so fucking stark that they're like oh what what damage could be done um by by questioning the the institutions of american democracy and by questioning voting and this is exactly the same sort of people new statesmen um and people like i don't know the, the background of the the author of the book but even writing the book, I would assume oh, he's a legal he's in academic. Sort of, yeah, legal academic. They're exactly the sort of people who've un- been trying to undermine the election of Trump since since 2016 and the Brexit vote as well. Obviously, have to mention that. And I just think that the the whole like the advice to voters it's so patronising at the end of the article. Like you need you need to vote to make sure that the obviously to make sure that <laughs> yeah. the, the result which, is decisive. And which doesn't mean anything. Things. Because you could vote, because you could vote for Trump, and you have a very tight election with a very high turnout. Like it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. Senior political figures should should warn the electorate about what is at stake in the election. It's like fucking hell. That is just so like even to, to take that kind of route. It's so it's yeah. so infuriating. And just think yeah. these, you know, fuck these people. They have they have they're, they're they're projecting their own disdain for democracy onto somebody who probably isn't its greatest fan. But I think it's just. I don't know. It's just, I mean, that's the point you made earlier, Phil. I think it's, I think it's, it's right that, you know, there's, you, you should be rightly skeptical or dismissive of this, of this kind of um, sort of pundit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I take your point. I think he makes, you know, some. Uh, he's more measured at, at any rate than it seems that the article wants to make out. That's my point. Um, yeah. And he makes a point. You know, I think there's some correct points that of, of you know, pundits on election night should say results provisional, not call the election, because of course that's a, you know, that's always a power move that uh, networks declare in, in in one way or another. It happened in 2000 um, to quite significant impact uh, in in electing George W. Bush. So you know, it's it's hardly it's hardly un. un- scene but um yeah i i think it does speak to the kind of flimsiness of of american institutions and, and american democracy is, right now he is more measured but he's giving kind of i mean i think george is right he's giving academic credibility to um to basically you know a deeply 
uh, the anti-democratic instincts of the liberal intelligentsia. I think that's right. Well, yeah, well, or, or rather, yeah, I mean, anti-democratic, but specifically, you know, a kind of liberal constitutional approach to things, which, uh, you know, it's interesting yeah. that he quotes Tom Stoppard's play, uh, you know, uh, Jumpers. So it's not the voting that's democracy, it's the counting. Um, that is to say, it's all the kind of checks and balances and the make it to make sure that whatever voting happens, um, that it's mm-hmm. done in that ways of follow the rules of the game and that, uh, you know, you have yeah, the courts right. who are able to intervene. Anyway, it's also it speaks it, to the, the constitutionalist. Yeah, and it's not actual the pro. You know, it's not the uh, idea of citizens in on mass shaping the political process and participating politically. Yeah. but like you say, rather the kind of the the, the, the returning process. officer making sure that it's counted and yeah. it's all legitimate and, and done by the book. And that kind of completely cuts against the final message, which is go out and do your duty, citizen, and make sure you, you know with the subtext of make sure you vote against Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, should we leave it here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, all right, uh, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you found it uh, useful. We're always willing to uh, take some suggestions as well, so feel free to send them in. I know uh, some of you have for this last one, but uh, in some of those cases, we found them a little bit too long and involved to discuss in this format, but we'll try to return to those. And uh, you know that I hope that doesn't dissuade you from sending in uh, future suggestions. All right, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.